having our Lord's Supper, but before we uh, turn to the breaking of bread, we will be meditating on um, our series entitled uh, Great um, Major uh, Lessons from the Minor Prophets. Major Lessons from the Minor Prophets. And uh, so far, we have uh, made our way up to the uh, prophet Jonah. So please turn with me there, and we will be looking at uh, the very uh, last chapter of Jonah. Mm. Basically, what we have said thus far is that uh, the, the books that we call the Minor Prophets were all written round about the same time. They were written just before Israel went into captivity. They were written while Israel was in captivity, and they were also written during that phase when Israel came out of captivity. And you can almost divide them in terms of four before, four during, and four after. And uh, all of them have got relevant lessons to teach us so that we may know how we are to live in the light of the God of heaven. Now, the book of Jonah is definitely unique. I hope we've already noticed that because all the other um, minor prophets we have looked at thus far are written in, in verse. They are written in, in poetry form. Here and there you have a narrative, but largely it is in poetry form. You come to Jonah, and yes, we had a section in chapter 2 that was in poetry form, but the rest of it is what is called prose. It's, it's basic narrative that is uh, flowing um, directly there. But also, the, the other prophets, it's, we are listening to the prophet himself saying or speaking to the people of Israel or maybe to other nations. But it's, it's the prophet talking. Whereas when we come to uh, Jonah, we are learning about the prophet. It's not Jonah himself who is talking. He is, we learn from Jonah by learning what happened to Jonah. And that's very rare. We got a bit of a glimpse of that when we were reading about uh, Hosea and when he, he married the prostitute. But even then, it was a very brief period, and then we moved on. And even more so, uh, Hosea himself stood out as a champion, stood out as a hero. We're all saying, Ah, no, me, I can't do this. I, I can't, I can't do this. But we come to Jonah, and it's the exact opposite. Jonah, we identify ourselves with him very easily. He is one of us. 
he runs away from duty. A, a fish swallows him. Okay, we haven't yet been swallowed by fish. But you understand, we've been in the depth where Jonah has been. And even today, as we reach chapter 4, and we see how God deals with Jonah, we again see ourselves in Jonah. But the main message of uh, the book of Jonah is not about Jonah. It's about God. It's about the love of God. His immense love. Or, as we have put it in today's sermon, it is about the amazing compassion of God. The amazing compassion of God. We see it through his mercy and grace towards Jonah and his mercy and grace towards Nineveh. So, both to his servant and also to his enemies. Why? Because both are in rebellion or disobedience. And God, in both cases, is going out of his way in order to bring them to himself. That's what is so amazing. So, so far, we have seen his disobedience in chapter 1, his restoration in chapter 2. We have seen the God of second chances in chapter 3, where he is sent again, and Nineveh is given a second chance because they come to repentance and faith. As we come to this final chapter, we are looking further, yes, at Jonah, but we are really looking at God. I will read the whole chapter. Thankfully, it's just 11 verses. And then we will study it in two sections. And um, the first section, I will quickly give you the heading as we read, is about our petty views and anger. Our petty views and anger. Verse 1 to verse 6 or rather verse 5. But it pleased Jonah, rather it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shed till he should see what would become of the city. And then we see God's amazing compassion from verse 6 downwards. God's 
amazing compassion. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? There we are. What a dramatic ending to a book in the Bible. I'm not sure that we have another book that ends like that. Basically, it ends in stalemate. Just there, bang. It's a question that God asks, and he leaves it hanging. Very well then. Two lessons, two major lessons that we learn. First of all, about ourselves, and secondly, about God. The lesson about ourselves is how our petty, self-centered worldview estranges us and hinders us from serving God as we ought. And we easily learn this from what happened to Jonah after God used him in a powerful way in Nineveh. Remember, Jonah was preaching in Nineveh, and within a very short time, the entire great city, from the top downwards, turned in sackcloth and ashes before God and repented. You would have thought that that's the kind of revival that every preacher is looking forward to. Imagine going into a, a city that is known for idolatry and wickedness and sin and preaching there just for a short period and then repentance basically flowing like a river across that entire city. You'd say to yourself, Lord, what a privileged person 
I am. Well, we are taken aback, aren't we? When we discover that in the case of this particular evangelist, he is upset. In fact, the way it is written, it's not simply that he's upset, but he is extremely upset. This one says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Angry not with sinners, but angry with God. Can you imagine? Angry with God. Why? Well, the reason that is given in the text is that Jonah anticipated that the kind of God this is, if I go and preach in Nineveh, he might end up forgiving these fellows because of the kind of God he is. One who is a gracious God, a merciful God, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, a God who relents from disaster. He holds back. In other words, he's very, very reluctant to pour disaster on people. He says, that's the reason why I ran off to Tarshish, because I anticipated that this would happen. Now, that still doesn't answer our question, because, look, that's what we all hope for, that this God who is there would be a forgiving God, that when men and women repent of their sin, surely he will forgive and forgive abundantly. So, Jonah, could you please explain why this should be bad news for you? Well, beyond that, unfortunately, the Bible does not explain. All it tells us is, upon saying that I knew this would happen, um, he was so angry that he walked out of the city, he sat on perhaps a little anthill, and began to look back into the city, hoping that God would change his mind and still punish this city. Hoping. Commentators have given a number of possibilities, and I'll throw out three to you very quickly. Don't take them as gospel's truth, but they might help. Remember what we said about the way the book of the, the minor prophets are divided. The first four are before the invasion of Assyria and um, um, yeah, Babylon. And then the next is these same nations coming in and the people are under captivity. And then the last they come away from captivity. So Jonah appears just before Assyria comes to attack and defeat uh, Israel. Jonah was a prophet, so he would have been preaching to Israel to repent, knowing very well that God was preparing Assyria 
as his weapon to come and teach Israel a lesson. Apart from that, he was among the other prophets who were also prophesying to Israel the same. So the theory is that Jonah took pride in being an Israelite, which he was. And therefore, the thought that he should go to this enemy of Israel to go and, as it were, rescue them. And then they should come and defeat his people, which included himself because he's part of Israel, that that's something that he had difficulties with. So his preference was to save his own people. His own people. And in that sense, we can all identify because we, we are all very... Uh, we're we very tied up with who we are. Where, wherever you go, you want to say, I'm a Zambian. I'm from Zambia. You, you want to, to take pride in your own nation. And any nations that then come and or threaten your nation become automatically your own enemy, personal enemy. And the last thing that you want is to, to rescue them. So there was nationalism there. And then number two, as we have already perceived, there was the, the desire to at least stop this nation from coming to win this war rather than saving them, and then they come and defeat his people. But thirdly, the commentator suggests that it could be personal ego, personal ego, in this way, that you, you leave Israel and you go to rescue a nation, and that that nation later on comes and defeats your nation. And now you have to live among your cousins who know that you left Israel to go and rescue the nation which finally comes to defeat us. So there's something of his own ego, his own integrity, and so forth. So that's another possibility. There's one that they throw in which I not fully agreed with, and it is the fact that his message in verse 4 of chapter 3, by the way, his message in verse 4 of chapter 3, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, he called out, yet... Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Forty days, and it shall be overthrown. The claim is that he did not say, therefore, repent to avert disaster. So it's like he prophesied, and now he's sitting, 
saying, well, let's see you do it. After all, you gave me the message and I delivered it. So I am waiting for my 40 days. But all that is sanctified guesswork. I think what we know is certainly that he was not happy with God pardoning these people. God relenting. Who knows? We read in verse 9 of the previous chapter. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Clearly, Jonah preferred to sacrifice the people of Nineveh for whatever reason that he had. He was a prophet. He was a servant of God. But clearly, God's mercy left him depressed. Bottom line, it left him depressed. And so he sat back waiting for God to still make this happen. And all I am saying, brethren, is whatever this petty, self-centered worldview is that Jonah had, estranged him from God. He had a quarrel with God. We can be in exactly the same shoes. In fact, we often are. Our social prejudice can leave us disobedient to God and hurt when God has mercy on others. In fact, we can even miss out on the joy of spiritual success because we are preoccupied with our own view of life. We shall see a little bit more of this when God now comes to deal with his servant and he deals with him mercifully. Remember what we keep saying. The amazing compassion of God is both to his servant and to his enemies. So here's the second lesson. The compassion of God is seen in his object lesson to Jonah, contrasting Jonah to himself. Which is what God often does to us, doesn't it? He, he allows situations to come into our lives, which take us a little bit by surprise, but the way we handle those situations reveal us to ourselves. God orchestrates events so that in the midst of our anger, or depression, we are finally made to see how worldly we are and just how godly God himself is. So here, 
God visited his sulking servant who is on a kind of spiritual boycott outside the city. I'm not going. Those of you who are parents, I'm sure you know it about children. So what did God do? There's a phrase that is repeated three times in verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8. And it's the phrase he appointed. He appointed. He appointed. In other words, God took the initiative to enter into the life of his depressed, sulking servant and did some kind of uh, object lesson that would make Jonah think again. Let's look at those three he appointed. First of all, the first one, he appointed a plant. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Number two, he appointed a worm. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And then thirdly and finally, he appointed a scorching wind. Verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. God has brought Jonah exactly where he wants him to be, and it is exactly where he was before. Remember at the end of verse 3, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So the first time he reached this point, it was because the, he differed with God on the way God handled Nineveh. So God decides, okay, I will bring you to the same point, but this time I will use another way. So he appoints a plant, he appoints a worm that chews the plant, then he appoints a wind that really beats so hard on Jonah's head that he's saying, I would rather just die. So that now is a good point for God to address Jonah. Because it's no longer about people, it's now about a plant. And yet Jonah arrives at exactly the same position. Just want to die. So God asks him a question. Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
Actually, it's the same question that he had asked previously. Verse 4. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? This time the anger was about Nineveh, but now the anger is about the plant. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And listen to his, his answer. He traps himself. His answer is, and he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. God has him exactly where he wanted him to be. And he says to him, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. How come? How come you, you are showing such concern for a piece of grass which comes up today and tomorrow is gone? Come on. What is it that's so special about this plant? The truth is, it was not about the plant that he was angry. It was about himself. It was his own little selfish life. Remember, if we can just go backwards a little bit, what this plant meant to him. Verse 6. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. So it wasn't just a plant over there that was concerned about. It was a plant over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head. So it was giving him some benefit to save him from his discomfort. Maybe he was a bold chap, we don't know. But clearly, that's direct sunshine from the Middle East was causing him a lot of discomfort. But now with his son, Listen to this, rather with this plant. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So really, it was not about that little piece of green vegetation that is over there. It was what it was doing for him. And that's precisely where God is trying to drive him. That, look, Jonah, actually, you are being a little selfish, warped soul. That's what's happening here. You never worked for this plant. You never toiled for this plant. You never sowed it in the first place. You've never done anything for it. The main reason why you are angry is because of what this plant has done for you. That's why you are angry. It's all about you. 
And then he says, but look at me. These people that you want me to destroy, it's genuine love for them. Genuine love. Look, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? He's saying, look, if, if there's a place where true compassion should be pouring out, it ought to be for these individuals who, spiritually speaking, know neither their left from their right. And look at the numbers. A hundred and twenty thousand that you want me to just get rid of just like that. We may be wanting to throw a stone at Jonah. But brethren, we are often in the same shoes. Why do we labor and work? What do we do most of the day? Seven days a week, some of us, including Sunday. What is it? To develop Zambia, give me a break. Be honest. It's about ourselves. It's about ourselves. We, we, we want powerful cars, powerful gadgets, powerful houses, powerful spouses, powerful families, powerful this and powerful that, for ourselves. And even when we know that these things soon perish, they do. Cars get hit into, become a complete wreck. Houses collapse. Gadgets, even while you are removing it out of your, the box you bought it from, when you turn on your TV, you are being told there is version 2. What you have is now outdated. Spouses disappoint and even die. But those are the things that occupy us. And when God wants to give us another agenda, a bigger agenda, one that is to do with eternal souls, souls which, if not rescued, must go into the burning flames of hell forever. Guess what we are angry about? 
that you've not yet given me a husband or wife. That you've not yet promoted me to that job that I have been craving after. That the company that I've been in has now been reduced in manpower and I've been thrown out. God, what kind of God are you? It's not about that company. It's about you and your selfish little life that makes you lose eternal perspective completely. You are bypassing souls that are still on their way to hell and you don't even notice it anymore. Why? Because you are angry with God, angry with him. Even saying to God, God, you can just kill me if you want. I don't care anymore. And it's not about those things, really. It's about yourself. It's about yourself. And through Jonah, God is challenging us. And his challenge basically is are you compassionate about the things that I'm compassionate about? Are you? Are you? I mean, you, you know, you, you find a person saying, yes, you know, I'm, I'm praying about which ministry to be involved in in the church. And one year later, he's still praying about which ministry to be involved in in the church. You say, okay, but what have you been doing for one year? They have been chasing a plant, which will wither tomorrow. That's what they've been chasing up, a plant. And it's not because of that plant. It's because of themselves. They've got their own little agendas that they are still chasing after. And therefore, serving the Lord in his great enterprise on earth is not something they're interested in. That's what God is challenging us about here. In our case, it may not be that we are angry with God because he's having mercy on the enemies of our people, but it's simply that we are angry with him because he seems to be busy with something else rather than us. We are hardly making progress. And so we are angry. We are angry with him. But God is saying, open your eyes. Open your eyes. Even today as you are going home, just, just look at the number of people you passed by who don't know what you know. They don't know. And they don't even know that they don't know. They don't know their left from their right. And who's supposed to speak to them? It's you. It's you. If it wasn't for the fact that in your own little soul, you are bitter with God and it's blinding you to the real need that's there. 
I say that it's the most dramatic end to any book of the Bible, but it's not the, the most dramatic end to a story in the Bible. There's another one. And it's exactly the same lesson. It's the story of the prodigal son. In a sense, it's been wrongly entitled because it's not really about the prodigal son. It's actually the story about the elder brother because in the previous two stories of the lost coin and the lost sheep, each one of them ended with the lost coin and the lost sheep being found. But this particular one, Jesus goes one step further because of what he wanted to drive home. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were murmuring because he was spending time with sinners instead of with them. And so the prodigal son comes home. He's been found. The story doesn't end there. Jesus, in a masterful way, weaves in the elder brother who comes from the field, hears the celebration, and is suspicious. So he calls one of the servants out and says, what's going on? What's going on? And he's told, your brother is back. Your father is excited. He's killed the fattened cow for him. He is annoyed. And he doesn't go in there. He's angry with his father. And when the father comes out to say, hey, what's going on? He talks to him the way Jonah talks to God. I'm very angry with you. Here I am. I've been faithful to you. I've served you diligently on this farm. Yet you've not even given me one young God so that I can celebrate with my friends. And then comes this useless son of yours, squandered your worth with prostitutes. And there you are, killing the fattened calf for him. He's angry with his dad. And his dad does something like what he does, God does with Jonah. He says to him, son, you are always with me. But your brother was as good as dead. And now I have him back. Shouldn't we celebrate? And it's a deadlock. Deadlock. Exactly the same way being preoccupied with my own little, little life, my own agenda, that when I'm sitting at the supper table, I can't notice that my father is sad because of that empty chair. Week after week, month after month, my dad is unable to, to enjoy the jokes of the day and, and the reports about the chickens having laid so many eggs and so on. He's not happy because of the empty chair. I don't notice it. Because my life is absorbed with my own 
little agenda. Until my brother comes and the real me comes out. The real me. I ask again, do you have this compassion that God has? This amazing compassion. Or will it still end with a deadlock? Where you're basically saying to God, God, unless I have that green plant over my head and this guy's dead, I'm not serving you. You come on my terms, not yours. May God break our hearts about our own sinfulness. Thankfully, he is a God who has compassion on us as he had compassion on Jonah. He arrives into our lives and says to us, what are you doing? Stop it. Stop it. There's something bigger about life. That's what it does. And then he wants to express his compassion through us to the world. Through us to the world. Brethren, if you're not living for souls, you're living for something that will soon perish you will outlive it. Let me say it again. If souls are not your number one agenda to bring lost humanity to God, whatever you've put number one, it will perish. Because we will all soon die. We will. Very soon, we'll all die. Live for something that you will find on the other side that is eternal. Put that first. Amen. Elder Matafuali.